0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello everybody, it is June the 8th, 2023, we are back to talking about the environment Uh, appropriately enough, given the kind of air now that is uh, polluting the East Coast. Although we're not talking air today, we're talking water. Another, I guess, of the two or three key things when it comes to the environment. We've done lots of shows on water before. One with uh, Giulio Boccelletti, uh, almost like a philosopher of water, I guess. His book, Water of Biography, I found particularly intriguing. Unfortunately, most of the shows we've done about water have been rather depressing, typically with writers like Kerry Arsenal to Her book, Milltown, uh, suggests that uh, literally and figuratively uh, a decaying, toxic ri- river is running through our towns, our cities, our civilization. Uh, we talked a couple of years ago with Erin Brockovich, of course, Globally famous as an environmental activist. She had a new book out, um, Superman's Not Coming, Our National Water Crisis and What We the People Can Do About It. A book all about agency, human agency and water. And more recently, we did a a show with David Hardin on the Flint water crisis. Um, uh, His book, Standpipe, Delivering Water in, in Flint, is also rather depressing. Today, we have one of the world's real authorities on water, Peter Glick. He lives in Berkeley, where I used to live. Uh, he has an incredible resume. He's a, been a MacArthur genius fellow, all sorts of other things. And he has a new book out. It's coming out next week. So I'm thrilled that we have uh, an opportunity to talk to him before it hits the shelves. The Three Ages of Water, Prehistoric Past, Imperiled Present, and Hope for the Future. So uh peter is not entirely bleak and he's joining us from berkeley today peter welcome thanks for having me on andrew are you familiar with the Boccioletti book i'm
1: curious whether uh you know i am actually and in fact uh julio and i are going to be sharing a program uh uh, sometime in the next month or two to talk about the history of water and uh, where we're going well let's
0: begin with the prehistoric past um What are the scholarly debates or activist debates? What don't people agree about the history of of water, Peter? And and what are you arguing in the book about its
1: history? Well, this first age of water, which I would describe sort of as our prehistory, uh, is really the time from when water first coalesced on the planet itself through the evolution of humanity, uh, through the migration of Homo sapiens out of Africa. All of these things had to do with water. The creation of life itself on the planet is, is fundamentally dependent on water. It's the only form of life we know is water uh, dependent. There's uh, still some uncertainty about exactly when and how the planet got its water, whether that was here at the very creation or whether the Earth was bombarded billions of years ago by, by big asteroids and comets bearing water. Uh, But it's been true that we know water's been here for over four billion years, almost the entire existence of the planet. And we also know that water and climate both were really fundamental to the evolution of Homo sapiens, our own evolution, and that our ability as early humans to manage and survive the extremes of the hydrologic cycle, floods and droughts and extreme cold periods and warm periods, really helped define humanity the way it is now. So the first age of water was really a period of time when we became the humans that we are today. It's more than just
0: agriculture, isn't it, Peter? It's more than just a thing that allows us to survive. There's also the spiritual element. One of the things that we've often talked about on the show with novelists and poets is the significance, the meaning of water. In, In the prehistoric past, I'm not suggesting humans turned water into a god, although I'm sure they have done. But how did water permeate, so to speak, our consciousness, our sense of who we are as a species, and the meaning of our lives?
1: Water absolutely played a role in the early religions. Many of the early gods, where there was a god in many of the cultures... Uh, In the Middle East, for example, there was a god of water. There was a god of salt water, a god of fresh water. Uh, There were gods of the earth. There were gods of the air. The early civilizations, the early cultures turned to religion and turned to spirituality to try and make sense of the world around them as they learned how to manipulate the world around them. Uh, Some of the early stories, the flood epics, the story of Mm -hmm. Noah, but then earlier than that, 2,000 years before that, Sumerian flood epic stories, uh, all talk about the gods and the role that water played in in washing away human human sins and the recreation of the earth. So we see this over and over again. even the early Aboriginal cultures in in Australia understood that water was fundamental to the beginning of humanity. Uh, and that has that has continued through today.
0: So in a sense, both floods and droughts are
1: a manifestation of the God's displeasure with us somewhere. That was our early understanding. When, when we didn't understand the world in the scientific way that we think we do today, we had to try and make sense of what was happening. And extreme events became punishments from the gods. Uh, good harvests became gifts from the gods. And that's how religion evolved over, the to- over time. And all of the early religions talk about water as a fundamental part of the beginning of humanity. I wonder whether that's, in some sense, is fueling
0: some of the, our environmental concerns. Some of the people we've had on the show, particularly people who are cautiously optimistic about new technologies and businesses that address the environment, suggest that there's a degree of religiosity uh, at the heart of some of the more um, apocalyptic forecasts. Do you think there's any truth to that?
1: Well, certainly, uh, many of the religions have an apocalyptic vision for the future uh uh end of the world, end no, of the no, world. No, my gonna...
0: no, my point is that that kind of religiosity has perhaps been transported from traditional religiosity into some of some of the the more extreme uh environmental movements do you ever see any of that i mean you're obviously an environmentalist and i'm not going to make an absurd argument that there isn't a water crisis. Uh, but I'm just curious as to what you think.
1: Uh, there, ha- You know, interestingly enough, the whole concept of Gaia a number yeah. of years ago uh, was a sense of maybe the planet is living. Maybe, maybe uh, it's not just individual species, but that the planet as a whole is a living entity that deserves protection. Um, and I do think there is a bit of a th- uh, trend in some parts of the environmental community about that as as a way to both argue that we need to protect the planet, uh, an argument that I think can be made on lots of other grounds. Um, so So perhaps there is some of that. We've
0: done some shows, actually, on Guy. And I'm also curious, Peter, I'm not sure whether your expertise extends to this area, whether our aesthetic sense, our sense of beauty, was shaped... By water, or whether perhaps it's a consequence. We, you know, the, the the staring into the ocean, for example, the looking at water often gives us enormous pleasure. Artists, poets, writers, or just ordinary people, have you ever given any thought to that of, of why we humans love the sight, the sound, the smell of water?
1: Well, speaking for myself, I, I'm, I'm one of those people that loves to sit by a river that finds enormous sense of satisfaction and peace by just sitting by the water and watching the water flow. And I have no idea if that's a, a holdover from our genetic beginnings and our early beginnings, or it's just the, the, the way that uh, we, we try to reconnect with water from the day-to-day craziness of our busy lives and our ur- often urban lives. Uh, and a chance to get out into nature, it certainly affects me that way. I know it affects a lot of other people that way, and I, I don't know whether that's something that's just inbred in us or, or uh, something that is a naturally occurring phenomenon.
0: Well, and that's speculation. Let's leave behind the prehistoric past, which generally, I assume, from the point of the environment, is not a bad story. It's just a narrative of, uh, of natural cycles, is
1: it, Peter? It's an important part of the story because, in a sense, uh, you know, the early cultures and the early empires of me- ancient Mesopotamia and the Indus Valley and, and, and China, they developed where there was reliable water. Uh, the first agriculture developed where there was reliable rainfall right. or reliable rivers. Um, and without understanding the importance of water, I don't think we can understand the way these early first empires developed. Um, And that is the first age of water. It's when when we first learned how to deal with water, we developed the first water laws, the first the first dams, uh, the first ethics around water. And uh, unfortunately, things like the first water wars all were part of this early age of water. So
0: your second stage in your three ages of water, you describe in the book as an imperiled present. When did that begin? Did it go together or does it go together with the beginnings of the Industrial Revolution at the end of the 18th, beginning of the 19th century, which itself was, of course, particularly in Northern England, bound up with water and
1: water power? Absolutely. So uh, I described the second age of water, which incidentally is, is our age, I believe, uh, as the the period of time when we really needed to get smarter about water, when we started to outgrow outgrow those early water resources, when those early empires couldn't mobilize enough water to satisfy growing populations and growing economies, and it was a period of time when we learned about the science of water, when we discovered what hydrogen was and what oxygen was and what water itself was, and it was a time when we discovered not just that water-related diseases were bad, but the sources of water-related diseases and the causes of them, and ultimately efforts to cure them. And it was a period of time when we developed the technology and the infrastructure to provide safe water for growing cities, uh, a lot of irrigation water for growing populations to grow food. Uh, that's the second age of water, and it was includes the Industrial Revolution. Uh, it includes the cultural and artistic and and. Uh, engineering advances of our modern day, and it's really the, the period of time when we permitted and enabled our economies to grow to where we are today, but also ultimately includes the unexpected consequences of those,
0: of those developments. We could run the narrative again, Peter. Of course, we can't. What might we have been able to change when it came to water that would have resulted in less environmental crisis?
1: Well, of course, the second age of water, which, you know, as I said, is our age, also includes all of the unintended consequences of the advances that have have benefited us. Uh, The overuse of water, the extraction of water from ecosystems and the collapse of ecosystems around the world, the failure to provide safe water and sanitation to everyone on the planet, even though we have the technology to do that. But we have failed for billions of people to provide safe water and sanitation for everyone. Uh, The growing conflicts over water, the violence associated with disputes over access and control of water uh, that we see today, and of course, global climate change. Those are the unintended consequences. And if we could do things differently, maybe we would understand better or care more, for example, about the ecological consequences of taking more and more water out of our rivers and lakes and overdrafting our groundwater and contaminating our water resources, the things we've finally learned are bad and are now just trying to come to grips with. But are there particular policy decisions which were unusually
0: catastrophic? I I think of the movie Chinatown and the centrality of water in that, the hydroelectric uh, projects, both of the New Deal government and of centralized governments around the world. Were there particular catastrophes or do they all kind of meld together like a, uh, a fast-running river,
1: shall we say? Oh, there are lots of things that, you know, if if we could roll the clock back, as you say, and do things differently, I I, I would hope that we would rethink the way we allocate water rights. You know, the water rights mm. situations around the world are totally chaotic now and archaic and written by communities with no no regard for the environment, which has no water rights for some reason, and indigenous communities which had their water taken away. You know, we've benefited enormously from big dams that protect us from floods and store water during droughts, uh, for for droughts and produce hydroelectricity, but also devastate our rivers and and destroy fisheries. Uh, you know, we didn't care about that or we didn't know about that when we built these big dams, but but we do now, and so that's something that, you know, someday we would look back and think we should we should have. We should have known better. We should rethink those things. There are lots of policies like that.
0: What about plastics, Peter? We've done a couple of shows on that, especially the pollution in the ocean. Um, is that important? And is there a, a, a sort of a parallel crisis of the oceans, of salt water and of fresh water, or are these things need to be thought of independently?
1: Well, they're absolutely connected. Of course, you remember from your elementary school days, the hydrologic cycle, which is... I wish I did, Peter. I never went went done any Uh, science. I know how to switch a tap on, and that's about it. So the hydrologic cycle is evaporation of water, largely from the oceans, but from land. The formation of clouds, then condensation and rain back onto the land and onto the oceans and runoff back into the ocean. So freshwater and saltwater are all part and parcel of the same hydrologic cycle that we that we depend upon. And the contamination of freshwater and the contamination of saltwater are are also linked the the plastics problem uh, is both a freshwater and a saltwater problem. Um, you know, we we hear a lot about the uh, I guess the plastic problem in the oceans, but it's a freshwater problem as well. There's actually another piece to the plastics problem of course related to water and that is bottled water now is a big deal mm. but literally billions of bottles, plastic bottles every day are a are a big con- contributor to the plastics problem. Uh, if you look at any of the images of the plastics waste that that's produced, a large amount of the volume of plastic waste is just plastic bottles from, from beverages.
0: Yeah, I'm astonished that we, and I include myself, unfortunately, we're all too lazy to give up plastic bottles. What about the politics of all this? You just had a piece in Time about protecting water infrastructure during the Ukrainian war. How much of this is bound up in the fundamental irresponsibility, immorality, and greed of governments themselves? So one of
1: the things I've done for many, many years uh, is look at the connections between water and conflict, uh, look at how water is used as a trigger of conflict, uh, access to and control of water leads to violence, how water is used as a weapon of conflict in wars that start for whatever reason, but where water or water systems is used are used as weapons. And the example of the Kakovka Dam just this week uh, being destroyed is an example where water has been used and water infrastructure has been used as a weapon of war or a casualty of war, where water systems are targeted during war. Uh, And again, in the Ukraine war, we've seen a lot of examples where water infrastructure, wastewater treatment plants, and water distribution pipelines have been attacked during the conflict. Uh, Attacks that I would argue, incidentally, are are war crimes. They're They're prohibited by the Geneva Conventions, but it hasn't prevented those from occurring. And there's a very long history of conflict over water in the first age of water. In the book, I talk about the very first water war, which is a war between the cities of Uma and Lagash in ancient Sumeria in 2400 B.C., almost 4500 years ago. A war that lasted almost a century over access to water from the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers over irrigation canals. Uh, And those conflicts, different kinds of conflicts have been continuing. Yeah, to I mean they see the a world. lot of people
0: argue that the Syrian civil war which of course took place in the same neighborhood is really a war, a war over water access.
1: Yes, I actually wrote about that as well. Uh, that was a war of course that was about religion and ideology and economics but it was influenced not caused by but influenced by a very severe drought in the in the region in the early 2000s that cut agricultural production led to a loss of of the uh, farming economy in Syria and a loss of workers uh, that had to migrate to the cities looking for work, and that contributed to political and economic unrest that ultimately contributed to the Syrian civil war. In my opinion, Peter, why is your work and and, and
0: this issue of water so controversial? You recently uh, announced that you weren't going to remain active on Twitter. You, I'm quoting you here. You say Musk and his blue-checked shock troops of completed uh, turning Twitter into a toxic, hate-filled, racist, sexist, anti-Semitic cesspool. There's some water metaphors there. What is happening on social media? What, how are people arguing against it? Are they funded by, I don't know, anti-water people? Are, are there, is there a real debate about this issue, or are people just
1: politically toxic? Well, that's hard. You know, it's hard to parse all that out. I'm also I'm also a climate scientist. I do a lot of work on climate change and the impacts on water resources. Um, I did some of the earliest work on how climate change would affect water resources in the Western United States. And I continue to work on climate issues. And a lot of the the most aggressive anti environment stuff that you see on Twitter uh, and other social media is is climate denial and climate denial is either people who don't know or uh, don't care about the climate science that's pretty clear about how climate's changing, or, or it's people who have a funded, fundamental interest in supporting continued use of fossil fuels. Um, it's a, you know, so it's a mix of bots. It's a mix of anti-environment people. It's a mix of climate deniers. Um, and it's very toxic. It's uh, And it's gotten worse given the changes at Twitter that, that have permitted the growth And support of some of these really ugly voices. Peter, can one be pro fossil
0: pro fossil fuel and pro, so to speak,
1: water as well? Are those two things incompatible? I don't think you can be pro fossil fuel and pro the planet. Um, You know, fossil fuels, uh, burning fossil fuels produces co2 and co2 changes the changes the climate and we're fundamentally changing the climate um energy is great we all want to use energy but it it can no longer be from burning carbon uh and so uh you cannot be pro fossil fuels and be pro water be pro climate be pro environmental safety be pro health anymore and the good news of course is that now they're alternatives right. i, I want to get to the fuel. future
0: let's just Continue talking about this middle period, which is the most controversial and, I guess, relevant for most of us. I have to admit, I was rather, I wouldn't say surprised, but cautiously encouraged by the fact that you describe our present as imperiled. There are many words you could use which are worse. I mean, what's the current situation? You just had a tweet and you were talking about the continuing rising of water levels. What is the current situation when it comes to water? How bad is uh, our current age of water,
1: Peter, from a planetary
0: environmental point of view?
1: I would argue that it's bad. And, and here, are the, here are the components that I think, uh, when I think about the water crisis, here's what I think about. Uh, probably the worst piece of it is the continued failure to provide safe water and sanitation for literally billions of people. Uh, something you and I take for granted. We get up in the morning, we turn on our tap and incredibly cheap, high quality water comes out. But for billions of people, they still do not have access to safe water and sanitation. And that leads to water related diseases. It leads to women and girls having to spend hours collecting, walking for miles often to collect poor quality water to take back to their homes. And they don't contribute to the economy and they don't get to go to school. Uh, that That's a big part of the crisis. But there's an ecological component to the crisis. We take too much water out of the environment and ecosystems are drying up and wetlands are drying up and rivers and streams are polluted and drying up. Uh, and so the ecological challenge associated with water is a big part of it. The conflict over water is part of it. We see growing conflicts over water. We we track trends in that and the number of violent events associated with water is going up, not down. And global climate change is a water problem. It's Rising temperatures increases the demand for water, putting more stress on the systems that are already stressed. We see more extreme droughts and floods because of climate change. Climate change is a water piece as as well. And so all of these things together are what I consider major components of the water crisis we face.
0: We did a show actually on the rising water crisis in Miami and the challenge to how people live on the coast in Florida and elsewhere And it it seems the consensus, and it comes back to what you were saying, is there's a a very strong socioeconomic element here that for people like you and I, for people living, able to afford to live in San Francisco or Berkeley, this crisis is not, it doesn't at least appear to be a crisis. It's affecting poor people, people living by the coasts, people living outside the United States. Um, Is that only going to be compounded if we don't address this crisis?
1: Oh, yes. You know, climate change is coming for all of us. (laughs) Um, You know, just again, you probably saw the news just over the last few days. Uh, Two major insurers in California have stopped issuing new homeowners insurance because the cost, the risk to them, they feel from extreme events, from fires, from water shortages, from droughts, from sea level rise, makes it not worth, to, worth it to them to provide new homeowner insurance. Yeah, that. Well, that means insurance for everybody is going to go up. Uh, it means there's going to be a real estate crisis. And oh, my God, think about what's going to happen in Florida and on the Gulf Coast, where they're really vulnerable to sea level rise as well and to hurricanes. Uh, these kinds of impacts are not going to be... Uh, narrow and wide, and they're not going to be narrow and limited. It's not just going to be the poor and disadvantaged that are vulnerable. It's going to be everyone in the long run. So let's move
0: on to the third age, the one that you're cautiously optimistic about, hope for the future. Why are you hopeful, Peter? It sounds like everything you've said so far has been pretty miserable, pretty depressing. What gives you hope?
1: So, yes, we have dwelled a little bit on the bad news and there's, you know, there's plenty of bad news out there. Um, I, I'm an optimist. I really believe that we can solve the world's water problems and move to a sustainable future. And I believe that because I see all around me and, and through the work that I've been doing for decades, the smart, successful examples of things that that are happening now that are solving these problems. Uh, They're happening here and there. They're not happening everywhere, but they could. And what I argue in this third age of water is that we can move to a more sustainable future if we change the way we deal with water and the change the way we think about the environment and change the way we understand the challenges that we face and also the solutions that are available to us. Uh, And there are a lot of components to that, but I believe that that can happen. And that's why I wrote this book about with the third age of water being a possible sustainable future. So let's
0: talk about that in two contexts. Well, perhaps three contexts. Firstly, what governments can and need to do. Secondly, what companies can and need to do. And thirdly, what all of us, you and I, and all our viewers and listeners can do realistically. Most of us can't spend the whole day as water activists. We can't afford it and we don't have the time. But we can do something, whether it's, Stopping watering our lawns or driving EVs or stopping
1: playing golf. So
0: perhaps you might go over those three.
1: So that's exactly right. There are things that that have to be done at every level. There are things that governments can do. Uh, Much of the problem with the failure to provide safe water and sanitation to everyone on the planet is governmental failures. Governments are responsible for providing safe drinking water for people around the world. Uh, and lots of governments have lots of challenges, especially in the developing world, where they're also dealing with educational problems and and communications and transportation and energy issues. But we know how to provide safe water and sanitation for everyone, and governments need to step up and do that. Now, that can also be done at the community level. It can also be done by water utilities. There are lots of actors who can provide safe water and sanitation, but that is one thing governments need to do. Uh,
0: Government- um- For people just listening, I need to note that you're wearing a very attractive purple shirt. And I just got pitched a book called The Purple Presidency, How Voters Can Reclaim the White House for Bipartisan Governance. Is there a purple agenda in in all seriousness, which can bring together left and right, uh, radicals and conservatives, progressives and conservatives when it comes to the water
1: issue? In well, I hope there is, in politics. you know, there's, there's obviously a, a tremendous political divide now that's unbelievably ideological and and senseless in many ways, especially around something like the issue of water. If you look at the opinion polls that have been taken for many decades consistently, people care about the about water, left or right, Republican or Democrat, conservative or liberal, people care about water. They want safe water. They they want a healthy water environment. They want their lakes and rivers to be clean, uh, and so that's not an ideological thing. And I do believe that can, there can be agreement about that. The tools that we use to do that, there's always dispute about. Um, you know, should it be government regulation? Should it be uh, economic incentives? Should it be? You know, there are lots of different tools for achieving those things. Uh, and that's a debate that ultimately our politicians and local communities are going to have to have. But we have laws that protect water quality, the Clean Water Act, the Safe Drinking Water Act, uh, that were passed with bipartisan support many, many years ago. And if we can get past some of the ideological debates today, I think there would be support for strengthening those as what well. What
0: about the role of international organizations as well? Um, Gretchen uh, uh, famously calls the blah-blah of the U.N. Is there a role for them or are they a waste of time?
1: Well, the U.N. does have a role to play. Um, The U.N. in 2010 declared a human right to water, a legal human right to water after many years of debate. There have been a lot of human rights explored and defined in the past, but until 2010, there was not an explicit human right to water. There is now. Now, the question is, how do we implement that? How do we get governments and individuals and communities and corporations to apply that and respect that? But it's a tool that we can use to move forward in a positive way. Um, I do think there's a role for international organizations to help provide uh, water, safe water and sanitation. There are lots of organizations at the international level working on that. Um, and there are lots of organizations at the international level working on all sorts of other environmental issues as well. So I, I believe there's a role for the international community. And what about the role? Another, of, one more sorry. issue, though. Another important issue is a lot of water crosses international right. borders. Um, and when water crosses an international border, it's hard for one country alone to manage it. And that's a, a role for the international community well. And particularly in well. places already
0: riven with political conflict, obviously the Middle East comes to mind.
1: Yeah, that's right. The Tigris and the Euphrates River is shared by Turkey and Syria and Iraq and Iran. Uh, uh, Almost all international rivers are shared by two or more countries, and that requires a different kind of international cooperation. So what about
0: uh, private companies? Again, we've had this ongoing debate on this show, and obviously is a really important one, about whether the problem is with private corporations or the fix. I'm guessing it's both.
1: Well, private corporations absolutely are both responsible for part of the water challenge we face and have the power and influence sometimes to, to influence those things for the better. There is an effort underway called, cor- uh, there's a field of work called corporate water stewardship. Uh, and again, the UN has a role to play here. The UN has an organization called the CEO Water Mandate, which is basically CEOs of big companies who have agreed to work together on issues around water sustainability. To understand the the water use by corporations, to move to more sustainable water use by those corporations and more transparency about how they use water. uh, To work with local communities so that they're agreeing about restoring water in local communities and not just contaminating water in local communities. So corporate water stewardship is, is a new tool that I think has, an op- has a, a possibility of being quite influential because there are a lot of big companies and there are a lot of big multinational companies that play a role in the water space. Uh, and they can be very influential and very effective. The good ones.
0: Well, as I said, let's end. I began talking about Erin Brockovich, Superman's not coming, suggesting that ultimately our water crisis is up to us. What can we do, Peter? What What can we as individuals with lives and other concerns, what can we realistically do to address this, this crisis and to realize your cautious optimism about the future age of water?
1: So as I, as I describe in my vision for a positive third age of water, there is a role for everyone to play from governments through corporations to individuals. Um, obviously, we as individuals have limited ability to influence Corporate action or governmental action, although interestingly, groups of individuals can be extraordinarily effective. Um, but we can also think about water in our own lives. You know, we can replace our old inefficient washing machines and dishwashers and toilets with efficient appliances. And doing that, which has been happening over the last few decades, is already cutting personal water use we're already using much less water per person in the United States than we used to, in part because of individual actions to use water more efficiently. You talked earlier about our lawns. Well, in the Western United States, maybe we shouldn't have individual lawns anymore. We should replace them, they're very water guzzling, with beautiful outdoor gardens. I don't have a lawn anymore. I have a beautiful garden that's very low water using, and that's an important role for each of us. But we can also get involved in the political process. We can run for water boards. We can vote for those candidates who understand environmental issues and understand water issues. All of those things are things we can do as individuals. And the more individuals who do them, the more power we have. And we
0: should stop playing golf, shouldn't we, Peter? I'm particularly opposed to that.
1: (laughs) So yes, golf courses use a lot of water. There are golf courses now that use recycled water And that's a much better thing than just using water from rivers and groundwater. And there's some golf courses that have much less grass than they used to. So make them pay for the water. And if possible, make them get rid of that grass.